Hi, everyone. Welcome to Peace Talks. I'm Vanessa Sadler here with my friend Todd Hunter. And today, Todd, two of my worlds collided. What? Do I get involved in that? Am I one of your favorite worlds? Yes, you are one of my favorite worlds. (laughs) Nice, nice. Uh, We had such a special time. I don't know. Some of our some of our listeners may know, some may not, that in addition to spiritual direction, I'm also a facilitator with the Islander Center, which is located within the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. And Dan Allender has pioneered a narrative approach or a storied approach to trauma and trauma care. And today we have the delight of interviewing the very distinguished Linda Royster and the incomparable Dan Allender who are just two of the slew of of instructors that I've had the honor of learning from. So Todd, today, what was special about this conversation for you? I think it's the way we moved in and out of the personal and the social, the challenges that each of them have, and the way that as we address those challenges, both we might call internal and civic, like you can't take them apart and they, yeah. they work together and they keep, they kept bringing us back to those things kind of mm-hmm. equally. And I, I really appreciated it. Yeah. It's such a dynamic fluidity. When I teach about, when I teach on, on story or trauma, mm-hmm. I take one of those Hoberman orbs. Yes. And it's one of those connects orbs where it's a ball that you can squeeze in and then pull out. And that individual and collective idea is what's there for me. I'm always inspired by new and imaginative ways of considering and thinking about these categories that we talk about. And this conversation left me with lots of notes that I want to come back to. So I came away inspired. I did too. And came away educated. Like uh, our listeners will hear today a new big word for lots of them, epigenetics. That's right. And uh, some things like that, that as Vanessa said, they help us see what's going on in us, um, what's going on in the world around us. I feel like I was educated and equipped to be a more redemptive person. And I don't know Mm. if I have higher praise than that. Mm, May it be so. May it be said of all of us. We get to talk about a few of the offerings that the Allender Center puts out every year, and especially some that are up and coming for our area and virtually. But those two offerings, one is the Racial Healing and Trauma Workshop that is offered virtually that is coming in the second week of June. That's specifically for BIPOC folks. So if you're listening and you fit within that category of marginalized ethnic groups, that is uh, a workshop that I could not recommend more. And the other is that Dan and Linda, who we interviewed today, are coming to Nashville in October of this year for a two-day seminar on effective trauma care which will also have a racial trauma concentration to it. So be listening for our conversation around those offerings. Welcome to Peace Talks, brave conversations about formation, justice, and peace, led by Vanessa Sadler and Bishop Todd Hunter. Welcome, Dan and Linda. Vanessa, Todd, so good to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. Great to be here. I feel like I get to be Vanessa's friend today that she invited me to be with two of her favorite people. Thank you, Vanessa. This is fun. This will be fun. I'm looking forward to it. What I'd love to do is just dive right into a couple of opening questions that are a little more lighthearted that we ask all of our guests. So either of you, both of you, where do you feel most inspired I feel most inspired by the water, being by water, Mm, usually any form of water, Uh, certainly being at a beach and simply watching, listening to waves roll in endlessly. And each each roll, each crash of a wave is mesmerizing and it Mm. never gets old. I could sit for hours. It's it's where I feel inspired by God mm, I and that. nature. Mm-hmm. And Vanessa, I'm going to use the same language, but I'm going to add one phrase, and that is I love to be near water. 
particularly a river, as long as I have a fly rod in my hand. Then uh, I am yes. then I'm not only inspired, but I'm mesmerized. But I'd also mm-hmm. say I have six grandchildren. They all are mesmerizing and inspiring, but particularly my three-year-old granddaughter, Parker, who's nuts, who's absolutely out of her mind. And every time <laughs> I'm with her, it reminds me I am sane. <laughs> I think that, I mean, you're both speaking to the wildness of mm. life and nature that not only invites us to be wild as well, but also reminds us how tame we are when we are up against its backdrop. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Well, what brings out the worst in you? What's your pet peeve? Uh, I, I, I'm so petty. I'll go first. Uh, <laughs> I, slow drivers. Uh, I, uh, look, oh, Dan, I was going to say that too. <laughs> well, I, 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 let's just say if it's 25, it means 33. If it's 35, <laughs> it means in the early 40s. And That's people fair. who obey the speed limit, I have no patience. I have unrighteously called down the fire of God. So... <laughs> I have to say the same. That was top of mind for me. It's people who drive slowly in a fast Mm. lane. Like, why? 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 I think it brings out something very unwell in me. I guess this is my time to confess. I've I've never confessed it before. I guess I'll do it publicly now. When we first moved here to the Nashville area four years ago, um, you know, I went from Southern California freeways, you know, mm-hmm. where you got seven lanes sitting there going nowhere mm-hmm. um, in traffic. And here I drive my house to my office. I drive down these two lane country roads passing cows and horses and stuff. Mm-hmm. And when I got here, I was so mesmerized by driving 25 on a 25, looking at the cows and stuff. And people behind me would be honking. And this one guy went around me and gave me the finger. And I'm like, what? I'm just I'm just looking at the scenery. That's what happens, Dan and Linda, when you go from busy Southern California to the country in yeah. Tennessee. Yeah. It could well, be dangerous. And, but that's the setting where I think going slow bears yeah. beauty and goodness. I, I, I But I like the fact that Linda is... She's within the speed limits when you're slow driving in a place mm-hmm. that you should be yes, faster. Yeah. Mine's mm-hmm. uh, truly more outrageous in that, <laughs> look, you shouldn't obey the speed limits. <laughs> they're, they're more like guidelines. Right? They are. Yeah. They're, they're more like guidelines. But oh. we're not telling anyone to break the traffic laws. We're, we're not. <laughs> yeah. Bring yeah. Back Linda just Bring wants back. to be clear. <laughs> In case there's any cops or DAs listening today, Linda just wants to be clear. I love that. (laughs) Oh, well, I I think that I'll open us with this question, and it is is very broad and wide. But for the context of our listeners and the work that we do at the Center for Formation, Justice, and Peace, coming from you all from a narrative perspective, what would you say is imperative – for us to be contemplating or attempt to grasp around the nature of trauma and story and the places where they converge with spiritual formation or malformation, justice and peace. Nothing like a full banquet in your first question. I'll begin just by saying, can we actually say that trauma in every case isn't merely an event? though often, indeed, it can be conscribed as having a beginning, a middle, and an end, but it's actually a story, a story engaging a larger story. And if we can open the door to the reality that many of our stories bear um, significant heartache and trauma before certain events come to lace and severely open up the wound that often we've ignored. So two two core thoughts. One is we are a story. It's not that we just have stories. We are a story. And trauma exposes things within us that not only in the event itself, but things that have gone on well before need to be addressed in the context 
of what that heartbreaking event uh, has invited us to see. Yeah, and trauma, as I as I think about it, has such a powerful capacity to separate us from ourselves. Mm. That's one of the most powerful, I think, destructive aspects of trauma is that it takes us away from ourselves and we spend a lifetime trying to figure out how to recollect or recollect parts mm. of ourselves that have been split off, banished, uh, cordoned off, um, but it separates us. And then we, in our process of formation, so everyone will be formed by something in the course yeah. of their lives. And so trauma has a way, that's a really great word of, of malforming us because mm-hmm. um, it, we, we are, we end up being fractured in mm-hmm. lots of ways, mm-hmm. our sense of self, our, our sense of other people, our sense of how we're meant to show up in the world ends up being disformed. Um, mm-hmm. And so we have this misshapen identity as a result of unhealed wounds from the impact of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, so Linda, for our listeners today who aren't expert in the kind of narratival approach to trauma that you and Dan work with, give us a simple, quick example of how, how trauma separates us from parts of ourself. Like what does that look like sort of clinically? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. So I, to, to think about a child around four or five years old, they have an experience of sexual trauma by someone mm-hmm. that they had trust, someone mm-hmm. who had earned and gained their trust. So they have this traumatic experience of sexual abuse. And in the midst of the abuse, their little bodies may have gotten aroused or they may have felt the goodness of being what we would say groomed by an abuser, but they felt the goodness of having been seen mm-hmm. and known and attended and attuned too well. And so yeah. their whole little being and body came alive with that mm-hmm. kind of really expert kind of grooming. Mm-hmm. And then to have that trust broken, that betrayal happen in a moment or over the course of time. And so the misshaping begins to happen when the cursing of their good, good body and how their body was aroused, Mm -hmm. how they came alive to being looked at or smiled at or held, knowing that, not knowing at the time that they were being set up for horror. And so the misshapen happens with a sense of self, what they come to do with the little person that believed, that trusted that felt the goodness of their body. So by the time they're 10, how has that misshapen identity been crystallized or formed? Mm, Because now they don't trust their body. They don't trust the goodness Mm. of what it is to be in a relationship. So that's an example of a bazillion types of uh, misshapen identities that can happen. I think the only other thing to be added is that all trauma, whether it be literally a car accident or, as Linda put words, to heartbreaking betrayal, our our brain changes in the middle of trauma, uh, what we know to be the left frontal lobe, the area that manages thought, deduction, process of being able to evaluate and assess, goes offline when we're in the middle of trauma. And the part of our brain, the thalamus, that integrates how we're feeling, thinking, decisions, goes offline. So literally, in the middle of trauma, we're fragmenting. But what Linda's talking about is that fragmentation in the moment that lingers largely because of a sense of shame. So shame itself is a form of trauma. So an event may bring shame, but shame alone traumatizes us with all the fragmentation, a sense of going numb. Like Mm. we just don't feel much when we're in the middle of trauma, but we also isolate. We also cut ourselves off from ourselves, from others, and ultimately God. So I love the way Linda put it. It is a form of deformation, Mm. not reformation or formation. That happens in the middle of trauma. And it's one of the reasons that I believe evil loves trauma because it sets us up for a direction that actually will inevitably bring even more trauma and heartache. 
So Vanessa, I know that Dan and Linda have been your, your teacher mm-hmm. and for a number of years now, and then you and I are going on working together, I think for a year. So Vanessa, as you hear your teachers and now your colleagues in this sort of ministry, what do you, what do you bring into our work together from what you've just heard? Mm, of course you would ask me that question. I'm thinking about this idea of what I've what I've learned and gleaned around attachment mm-hmm. um, and the ways that we form connection and relationship early on with caregivers. But I'm thinking about it, attachment and specifically mirror neurons uh, in the context of human dignity mm-hmm. and wellness uh, and mirror neurons you know, being the idea that when, when, when a child scrapes their knee um, and they come in from falling off their bike into the living room or into the house it, and they are clearly distraught and distressed and their face registers pain, right? And neediness. How does that land with a caregiver? Mm. Um is it does it register or translate as irritation or frustration mm. or neediness um, mm. and how then does that caregiver respond and i'm juxtaposing that so that's a frame right i'm juxtaposing that with the work that we do at the center around spiritual formation and justice and what does it what does it look like or mean to take something like attachment theory something like mirror neurons to say like the god in me recognizes the God in you, person who doesn't look like me, speak my first language, see this country as their first home. How are we forming or malforming our attachment in these spaces? And then what does redemption and healing and repair look like? Yeah. Okay, so for everybody driving their car, uh, pounding on their uh, steering wheel saying, what the heck's a mirror neuron? Okay, definition break. Uh, Dan, what's a mirror neuron? <laughs> well, actually, it was only about 30 years ago that what was discovered in the brain were these particular cells that seem to respond to the suffering of another. So that when you see, for example, a five-day-old child beginning to physically orient toward another child in ICU or in NICU, and mm-hmm. You know that child doesn't understand sorrow, suffering, tears. How is it that they're turning toward? Literally, the idea of our eyes take in and we begin to feel something of what someone else is feeling. So mirror neurons are the part of our brain that God made really centrally to create empathy, a connection, to orient, to have that sight of the other. Great. Thank you. Well, Linda, Dan, you guys have been working at this intersection of narrative and trauma for a really long time. We're wondering for our work in the center as we think about justice, and you can't think about justice in our day without thinking of racial justice. I mean, there are other things you can think about, but you certainly would include somewhere right at the center of it, racial justice. How are you seeing trauma coming together with issues of race What's happening in the landscape that you can see? Where's the conversation going? How would thinking about trauma, the way you guys are talking about it, help us in the center uh, think better and have better practices of racial reconciliation? Mm-hmm. Such a wonderful and um, a really big question. Race is, and and I'm speaking out of my experience and what I what I experience to be true. It might not be true for everyone, but race or racism, racism is a projection. Mm. Um, it comes from places of unhealed wounds, mm. and so when so then it makes sense that racism can become traumatic not only for the person who's receiving the racist ideology. But it is also traumatic for the person who holds the racist ideology. So no one, essentially no one truly wins um, Mm. in a system that's rooted in supremacy or rooted in racism. 
And any conversation about race or racism tends to be a powder keg or like Mm -hmm. a powder keg in our current culture. Um, Because I think on the one hand, it becomes so terrifying for lots of folks to have that part of their heart, they're being engaged or exposed. I think lots of people would rather be anything but racist or Mm -hmm. to have to own it, right? Or have to be challenged on it. And so if there is such terror, such fierce protection around Mm -hmm. even around that part of themselves or even having a conversation about how can those wounds get healed so that that so that we can actually begin to live into what we often talk about at the Eleanor Center um, is Shalom, living into mm-hmm. the kingdom of God, co-creating an experience where there is goodness for all, not only the personal, but for the collective. But yeah. so so to begin to engage the question, I would essentially go back to saying that racism is a projection. It's a projection of the unhealed ideas, wounds of the self that gets put out into the world and into on into other people without having the ability to turn inward to say, what is the unhealed thing that I'm acting out of right now? What is the thing that's driving me, that's holding power, that's causing me to have a particular perspective, belief, energy toward other people? Hmm. So, Dan, if I were to ask it slightly differently, what would a trauma-informed response to race relations look like? Again, it may sound too simplistic, but let's just begin with the question of, are we sinners? And the inevitability of that, like First John says, if you say you do not sin, you're a liar. Well, the nature of sin is lust. It's also anger. And Jesus ups the ante for those words to adultery and murder. So when we're talking about racism, it's always a form of exploitation. And the, the, the notion of I will use you, I will take advantage of you and consume you, that will That's just the word lust. And then if you don't fit my world, fit what I want and demand, I'll make you pay. In that sense, it's anger or another form of that is murder. But I think what we see in all forms of racism is exploitation is actually given honor and degradation of those being used is assumed to actually be justifiable. So whenever we're using someone, at one level, we're being racist. But in the the form of racism, when you take on an entire people group and use, Mm -hmm. judge, generalize, and do so in a way in which you think you're correct, that structure of exploitation and dogmatism as it plays out with regard to degradation of others. Mm -hmm. And then the wicked even go further to then silence those who have been victimized by, in some sense, blaming them for the very harm that they have suffered. That's, to me, when you begin to look at racism across the world. Now, we need to deal with the fundamental racism in our country, which is white supremacy. But it would be naive to say that racism doesn't exist in all people groups and all worlds, ultimately because of the reality of sin. Yeah. Okay, Vanessa, so you're sitting in class or something. You just heard Linda and Dan. What's the what's the question that comes to your mind or what's the application where you, you fear yourself going, yeah, I know what to do with that thought? <laughs> well, it wasn't so much uh, like I know ex- I know what to do with that thought, and let's <laughs> let's go implement the the four point plan yeah. to save the world. <laughs> Come um, on, <laughs> like there are parts of me that I wish were that simple, and then there's the part that's like I no, I don't, I, I it cannot be, yeah. it cannot be, and and will not be, and shall not be. But there was a thread there in Linda, what you were saying about the idea of shalom. And mm. and I think often, Todd, you know, we have these conversations and we talk about the malformation and the spiritual formation yeah. piece and the justice piece. But we don't talk about the peace piece yeah. as much <laughs> as we would like to. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I 
one of the things that I have come to consider part of my anthology of learning is actually Linda's definition and teachings on Shalom. Mm. And so I want to pull her thread and, and just say, you talked about mutual flourishing. I wonder if you could tease it out a little bit more for our listeners. Sure. And there are so many ways to that, that this would apply. It's what's happening in, in the systems, for example, in this country, so there are all kinds of systems. There are systems in our community, systems of, in our school systems, systems in our family. Um, and so the hope in this understanding of shalom is that it's not only for you. It's not only mm-hmm. for me. And it's not only for those in my circle, my community, my tribe. But true shalom is is designed for everyone. Mm-hmm. And it is not built on the backs. It's not built on the backs of those who are oppressed. Yeah. So whatever monetary, financial, economic flourishing, if it's built on the back of the oppressed, it is mm-hmm. not a manifestation of shalom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. So mm-hmm. shalom has everything to do with bringing in certainly your circle, but those that you would deem outside your circle. Yeah. To bring in and to co-create. And the other part of Shalom is that I cannot determine for you, for example, Vanessa, what is Shalom? It's mm-hmm. a co-created experience. Because uh, yeah. if I move in and determine for you what is Shalom, mm-hmm. then I am doing the same thing that oppressors would do. Wow. Yep. So I co-create mm-hmm. an experience. That, that moves toward flourishing for everyone, Yeah, for everyone. And if we were to apply that to our lives, I wonder how our systems would change. Mm. That we would That's not really move big. from a fear of scarcity, but we would move out of abundance, that there is yeah. more than enough for everyone. That is so great, Linda. That is a super big thought. I feel like that's one of those thoughts you could go away with for a weekend retreat. Mm-hmm. Just sit yeah. with that thought. By the water, wave after wave. That's right. <laughs> that's right. So, Linda, you wrote the addendum to the 25th anniversary release of Dan's book, The Wounded Heart, a book that focuses on adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And in the addendum, you purposely address some of the issues that Black or African-American women face who are survivors of childhood sexual uh, abuse. So, first of all, I can imagine that was a costly thing for you to write. So, thank you very much for writing it. But um, what was important that you learned from that that you could share with our audience about the differentiated experience of black women in particular. Yeah. We've been talking about systems. We've been talking Mm -hmm. about white supremacy in this country. So it is difficult enough to engage stories of trauma and abuse because it's so um, unnerving. It's um, exposing. It places you in a space of vulnerability and to have those experiences in the context where you're already villainized, that your blackness is sin. And that's not a new thought. Lots Mm -hmm. of sociologists and lots of brilliant people have written about this idea of black folk being deemed sinful just because their skin Mm -hmm. has color. So when you're, when you're addressing trauma, when the larger context already assumes you're guilty, then we can begin to imagine what happens in the heart in the mind of a black woman, for example, when she has been victimized or she has been brutally betrayed and misused, then to have a system not be fully convinced that what happened to her actually happened Mm -hmm. or that what did you do to cause the harm? You must have done something. So black women are not given, are not granted this idea or this experience of being not guilty. They're assumed to be guilty by virtue of being black. Mm -hmm. And so addressing trauma, addressing, for example, sexual abuse for a black woman, not only can can be heart rendering for herself, but then on top of that, what, what does she do to report abuse? What happens when she reports it? Mm -hmm. If the abuser was a male, then the male, it's another black man in the justice system. Right. 
another Black family that's going to be ripped apart and now cast into, God only knows how long, into a system where there's already not a lot of equity, not Mm -hmm. a lot of, um, not a lot of justice. And so on the one hand, that's where that kind of the tension or, or feeling that kind of split wanting justice, but also knowing that it's going to be another person in the black African-American experience that's going to be caught in the justice system and being part of that or being feeling responsible for someone being put into the justice system is another weight that a Black woman has to bear as she seeks justice or not. Mm-hmm. And that's just one example of some of what I wanted to highlight just a bit in writing the addendum for Healing the Wounded Heart. I'm so good. That's so good, Linda. Thank you. And I have this question down for Linda, but I'm actually going to ask it of Dan. And that is, what role do you see mental health playing in racial justice? And do you see collective mental health in this country intertwined and dependent on one another? And if yes, how so? Well, I love that you ask brilliant, but complex, but also multi-layered questions. No wonder you work well with Todd and he with you. (laughs) So the um, immediate framework is uh, our mental health and the issues related to trauma, post-traumatic stress, to the realities of, of how poverty alone is traumatic. So the reality that we have an underclass that in many ways serves to remain there those who are above. That's a form of exploitation, you know, to argue that, you know, a uh, employer should not have to pay a livable wage. Well, that's an order for a structure, capitalism, to be able to function in a way in which we're not paying extra money for a hamburger. So when we create structures that we don't have to see, but actually impale people's lives, that's exactly what I think the prophets are addressing when they say, you have your finger on the scale. You shorten indeed the wages and None of us feel like we do that, yet we don't want to go pay more for a hamburger, given the reality that if people who are working there have a livable wage, then it costs more than we want to pay. So these are dynamics that don't seem like mental health, but they actually are the reality of the warp and the wolf underneath many people's constant struggle with not just survival, but thriving with shalom. And as we begin to address that, the question of what is mental health? Mm-hmm. What is it to feel whole when we know, for example, with regard to epigenetics, the people who were the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren of slaves bear literally in their body the effects of those traumatic experiences. So if we actually begin to talk about mental health, we're, we're coming back, and I simply want to borrow the brilliance of what Linda has covered. It's shalom, mm. wholeness, a sense of flourishing, an ability to receive and offer delight and honor, a recognition of human dignity, and the capacity to be in difficult conversations without either violence or without a refusal to engage because you shut down. So if we begin to define it, not in diagnostic terms, but in the larger categories of what it means to be honoring and caring eat for each other, then what I would say is uh, we are we are beyond any level of clear hope uh, because our mental health system, just for those who have diagnosable uh, struggles, uh, is utterly inadequate. 
So we're not talking about shalom and peace. We're not talking about the reality of what a marriage, what a friendship, what parent-child relationship, what it means to be a neighbor to one another is enough. So I would say, though I may sound despairing, there's no one that in one sense has more to offer than the believing community if they actually step out of the ridiculous and insane polarization, rage, and self-justification for a false form of victimization and actually begin to go, we we can bring peace. So Dan, let's go just a little bit deeper there. Most of the people who listen to this podcast would be faithfully on board as anti-racist, but we all have friends and family who maybe don't get it. I want to take you back to that term epigenetics, to the notion that in our DNA, our bodies remember these things. Because as I'm sure you know, Linda and Dan, the one of the in, great intuitions, almost like paradigmatic intuitions of a lot of white people is, what are you guys banging on about? Like this all happened three or 400 years ago and mm-hmm. it's it's better now. What are you guys banging on about here? And I think that there's a lot of angles to answer that question, the systemic things that Linda's brought up. There's a lot of angles, but you just brought up an interesting one. Can you say a bit more about how that would actually inform working on issues of race? Mm. Well, if, if we understand that we are not just individuals, isolated and alone and our brains entirely but our own, but actually we are in some ways, the unique, broken, but also beautiful byproduct uh, of of the nature of our own parents and our families. But also what research has indicated is that as scripture talks about sin being passed on to the third and fourth generation, well, we're actually discovering through epigenetics, that's really true, not just sin, but goodness, Mm -hmm. eye color, uh, balding patterns, and it affects your DNA. So the sensitivity to certain stimuli may not be particularly related to your story. It could be to your mother and father's story or your grandparents or your great-grandparents. So for us to have what often gets used to Psalm 139 uh, to talk about the nature of the body, how wonderfully and fearfully we are made, take a step back. We are. And yet the heartache of living in a fallen world plays itself out back to these two words, exploitation, degradation. So if you're anti-racist, then you at least ought to own you're a racist, Mm -hmm. which is a way of saying none of us can be perfectly free from projection of our own lust and anger. So part of the problem is In this new woke era, there's almost this fear of actually owning that we're sinners. And in that, we fail to actually engage in conversations, particularly with people of color, where they can bring the reality of how it's happening systemically, individually, and interpersonally. I want to say it very carefully. Don't use your friends of color to sort of be the mirror you got to do your own work. You can't just lean on others. But yeah. in ongoing, growing relationships, I know for what my experience with Linda, it has been hard. There have been deep wounds that I have brought to her that we've had to engage over many years, and I pray many years to come. But it's never going to be clean and easy and systemically four steps, as you put it, Vanessa. Nonetheless, staying in it, staying in it, being willing to keep hearing and growing, repenting, but also celebrating that we are in a different era than 50 years ago. Uh, and uh, do we want to use that to justify, let's not do the work? Or do we indeed celebrate it to say, oh my goodness, can we not see how much more work there is to be done? Well, in our first season, we had Sheila Wise Rowe, author of Healing Racial Trauma on the podcast, and we touched on 
individual and collective trauma, which is familiar language to me through the Allender Center and what you all have brilliantly brought. And you weave these ideas seamlessly throughout the programs that are offered. But for our listeners, Linda, I wonder if you, you both have mentioned this word exploitation. And I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about how sexual abuse or sexual exploitation, spiritual abuse and racism have converged. We know they've converged historically. And where do you see these categories converging collectively today? One thing that I kind of want to go back to and addressing is, is my experience of learning about epigenetics. And it's when I was writing the addendum for healing the wounded heart and in the back and forth. And anyone who's ever written knows that the editing process can be really brutal. And so just having conversations with Dan, (laughs) you know, we're going back and forth of what to include, what to think about, you know, directions to take. And I think Dan posed a question around something that had to do with genes or, or a genetic reality. Mm-hmm. And that's when I first, in my research, some 13, 14 years ago, came across some studies about epigenetics. I never heard of the reality of epigenetic being that something traumatic happened to you and it changed not necessarily the structure of your genes, but it turned on, up or down, like the manifestations or the expressions of your gene. Mm. And that got passed down to following generations. And so I came across the studies, um, I think, that, that talked about what happened with the children or grandchildren of Holocaust survivors mm-hmm. and how some would, who'd never it, had the personal experience, the grandchildren, but would smell smoke. And there would be nothing in their environment that would be smoking or sending off smoke, but they would have this, this these sensations or this sense of smelling smoke. Or there would be children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of those who suffered from the um, Irish children who suffered, whose grandparents suffered the potato blight mm-hmm. right, and experienced famine. But the manifestations in the children, grandchildren's system was that uh, that they were themselves experiencing a famine. Mm-hmm. And so this idea, but at the time I didn't find any research. So talking about systemic, the systemic reality, no research I could put my hands on that talked about the impact of hundreds of years of slavery mm-hmm. and what yeah. that has done to the systems, the bodies, the beliefs, mm-hmm. the experiences of African-Americans who were caught in the system. So that's one side that there's something literally happened in our genes, happening in our bodies to cause us to respond a particular way. Mm. It's no wonder that a disproportionate of folks in the African-American community like water, but haven't learned how to swim. Mm -hmm. There is no wonder when I moved across the country to go to the Seattle school for graduate school, that my grandmother blessed me, but had so many tears and urged me to think about, are there any schools locally mm. that you could go to? Cause she mm. wanted her grandbaby to stay close. Yeah. Right. That comes out of her story and the systems that she had to live within and survive that you keep your loved mm. ones as close as possible because mm-hmm. if they got out of sight or out of reach, it could mean danger for them. Yeah. And yeah. what little a, a capacity she had to protect, even that could be diminished or destroyed if her loved one got out of arm's reach. So we're talking about a collective experience of trauma. We're talking about an embodied incarnate experience of trauma, Mm. right? In addition to what happens in the family systems, right? What happens to the the personal embodied experience of one who's caught in a system of harm, who's targeted, who is exploited, that word again, who's degraded, who's who's the, the outcast or the foreigner. And what happens to that person who has to suffer the weight of what the family is not willing to engage, but gets placed onto 
one person. And so Mm -hmm. we're constantly seeing the integration between the personal and the collective playing out. It's not like there is a personal experience of sexual abuse and it's only in this siloed container, Mm -hmm. but there is a collective reality that influenced that personal experience. Mm -hmm. And then the personal experiences influence the collective. So they're constantly weaving in and out that fluid relationship between the two. Well, if you add that for three to 400 years, it was economically not merely viable, but actually gave greater gain to divide families, husband, wives, Mm -hmm. separated, children sold, so that the family structure for hundreds of years is fractured. So the notion that that doesn't have an effect on person and collective is horrendous. So when we begin to do this kind of work, it is so easy to dismiss and to say, well, each person's responsible for their own life and living well. And yet we simply know that we live in structures that have incredible influence externally. Why wouldn't we also acknowledge that there are internal structures that we have to engage as well. So when we're engaging the external systems that are based on inequity, we need to also deal with the reality of the brain, the body, and the cultural effect of hundreds of years of purposeful, intentional, economically driven traumatization. Dan, is there a a simultaneity there or a sequence. This is what I mean. Do we first work on the kind of internal things you're talking about versus things like public policy and that kind of thing? Or is there like, is there a sequence here or is it a simultaneity? Do you think? I, I love Picasso. So, you know, I'm going <laughs> to say simultaneity. The reality yeah. is that policy, I believe in the radical work of good policy makers and laws. But here's the complexity. Laws never change the human heart. And so we we can't just go to the human heart and to the individual and the change will bring about good things. We need to be able to do both and. Yeah. So pivoting a little bit here to um, maybe uh, something that would be helpful to our listeners. Again, most of our listeners have family and friends that might not understand why they're engaged in the Center for Formation, Justice, and Peace. (laughs) So you might be helping some of us, and you might be helping us as we help others. But Dan, thinking of your book, Leading with a Limp, where you talk about issues of weakness, brokenness, vulnerability, for people who are just now beginning to see what we're talking about here on the podcast about trauma connected to race, poverty, immigration, treatment of women, whatever... You talk in your book about the story of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a lot about the social psychology of our day. We've talked a lot about the psychology of our day. How does the story of the gospel relate to these things? Well, I, I think of First Timothy chapter 1, where Paul says, here's a trustworthy statement, worthy mm-hmm. of your full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And you know the next clause of whom I am the worst. So that's the problem with this issue of being anti-racist. I'm deeply committed and desire, but can we also, particularly as white people, own the complicity, own the convenience, comfort, the gains we've had I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the first moment of realizing that my father, who was a blue-collar worker and worked his tail off, also had the advantage uh, of the GI Bill, uh, and his black friends did not. Right. So something as simple as looking at wealth disparity in our country has to be owned that there have been systems set up to give advantage and to take disadvantage. And I went to college because of my father's labor, but also because of the advantages he got and being able to purchase a home. So how do I take personal corporate, personal collective ownership of the benefits to me of racism 
I, look, guilt never changes the human wor- heart yeah. uh, or does not change the world, but grief does. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ownership and lament and confession. So in one sense, what I would say is what we can bring uh, is can we tell the truth about the nature of our own sin-bound and yet redeemed hearts, the already not yet. And so if the gospel allows us to know that God knows fully, then we need to come more comfortably to name our own brokenness, but without any denial that I intend to use the last number of years of my life on this earth shouting about things I didn't address in the first many decades uh, of my life and work. And a large part of that is due to Linda and other uh, BIPOC friends. So what we can say is repentance is not an indictment that we're bad people. It's simply the acknowledgement we're sinners who have already been saved by grace. Therefore, there is no condemnation. There is no division between the love of God and the realities of our own heart. So the gospel, I, I mean, I just don't, I, the word is, it must free us to be and to tell the truth, to not be ashamed, to not be bound to contempt, but opening the door to the wonder of what it is for a, a, an old, white, cisgendered male to be able to say, I have my own prejudices and biases uh, that have to do with race, that have to do with gender, that have to do with sexuality, and can I grapple with them? And to hear the impact of my good, but also my ill on those that matter a great deal to me. And here's where I would say in response to Dan is that the grappling helps to build trust. It helps Mm. in the movement toward building trust because I can begin to see there's an honest, honest wrestling Mm. with what has um, been beliefs or ideology that's directed his life for decades. So I I can begin to trust someone who's actually going to lean in. So I'm not terrified of the conversation. And I think the invitation for all of us is that can we muster a tidbit, just a bit of courage to lean in and to know that it's actually going to build toward flourishing and goodness, just to take that tiny step toward beginning to lean into the conversation, that it's likely not going to lead toward more distance. It can actually go a long way toward building more trust. And that's not that we're going to dissolve or resolve all of the things that have been absorbed and internalized. But if we can honestly wrestle with the things that we hold, I think that can become a picture of what the kingdom looks like and a picture of what the gospel is. And and that we would not forget that the gospel is a story of trauma. The gospel is the power of God unto yeah, salvation, yeah. but it is a story about traumatic experiences of yeah. Jesus, yeah. right? And we are encouraged yeah. to share the gospel. We're encouraged. We're encouraged to share this good, good news with all. We're encouraged to share our trauma because mm-hmm. it might lead to the salvation of others. Yeah, Amen. Yeah. So, Vanessa. Uh, Thanks for sharing your uh, friendship with Linda and Dan with me and our listeners today. I know you guys are cooking up some things. Tell our listeners about it. Yeah, as we just sort of transition toward the end of the show, definitely wanted to take a moment to highlight a couple of workshops and offerings that the Allender Center has made available in and through this good, hard, murky, muddy, glorious work. In about a month, there's an offering coming up in the second week of June that I know you, Linda, um, and an incredible team of facilitators have labored and co-created to birth over the years. And it is called the Racial Trauma and Healing Story Workshop. Would you say a little bit about who this workshop is for, why it's important, and how folks can find out about it? Yeah, absolutely. It's a workshop designed for folk who identify as being part of the racially marginalized communities. In other words, they're folk of color, BIPOC persons. This workshop was designed uniquely for this group to have a sacred space where folks get to lean into their own story work without having to do the added work of figuring out how can their body be in a space where they're one 
two, three, ten of a minority um, so that the sacred space where they get to focus on their stories get to be centered. Right. So they don't have to do the work of interpreting and metabolizing, but their stories and their BIPOC experiences get to be centered. Um, And it's we have a concentrated time that's designed just for us. Lovely. And we'll we'll link some of that in the show notes. Uh, applications are open. So if you know someone or are someone who fits that category of the black, indigenous or person of color, please sign up for those who are listening, who are interested in engaging some of the categories that we've talked about today. Breaking news. You and Linda will be joining us in the Nashville area in October for a two-day seminar called Effective Trauma Care. And this particular seminar is going to have that racial trauma concentration. Can you just say a little bit about what practitioners uh, can expect, what ministry folks or people in general can be looking forward to or hope for from this time? I love the way you introduced it. And that is, yeah, practitioners, people who are dealing with trauma regularly, people who are in pastoral worlds where they're dealing with the complexities of trauma. But our conviction is there is no one who escapes having to engage their own and their neighbor's trauma. And in that sense, we're inviting people to have a deeper understanding of what happens to the brain, what happens to the body, what happens in relationships, particularly with one another, but also in our relationship with God, that we can enter the heartache, but with a deep sense, there is a redemptive movement. It doesn't take away the scars. One doesn't get healed in a way in which uh, one sort of leaves what one suffered behind. But there is a way to engage the reality of truth. If it sets you free, it's going to open the door to a sense of both wonder and a sense of awe that opens the heart further to be able to trust. And that's what we want for all. Amen. Lovely. So we like to end with a couple of just uh, one question for each of you, kind of just rapid fire for the for the fun of it. So, Linda, um, who are the current voices that you're listening to and and appreciating? Who who's inspiring you these days? I love the work of of uh, Dr. O'Berry Hendricks. He's a mm, he's a yeah. theologian. I, I love his work. That's top of mind right now. That's top of and mind. And are you I'm, thinking of his book, uh, like The Politics of Jesus, or are you thinking yeah, something different? Yeah, the politics. I was just looking at it last night, yeah. The Politics yeah. of Jesus. Um, also love his book. I think it's called Living Water, which is his mm-hmm. kind of fictionalized account of the Samaritan woman. And oh, okay. um, just yeah. just taking, uh, adding his imagination to what might have been the experience of this woman. Um, yeah. This woman at the well. So I, I am very interested in having fresh eyes. I've studied scripture for a long time, and mm-hmm. it's it helps me have a fresh love for the word when I can when I can connect to other folk who are challenging and disrupting some of my beliefs and yeah. adding color uh, to some of my experiences of the scripture. So, yeah, I think he'd be top of the list right now. Yeah, I would I would agree of. Uh, books I've read the last few years, his, his would have been really helpful for me too, the one on the politics of Jesus. Yeah. 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 What about you, Dan? Well, right before we began, I had a 35-minute walk with Amy Grant, and mm. uh, not obviously uh, directly, uh, but directly uh, through my headset. And <laughs> I, I've always loved Amy Grant, but some of her new work and new music – uh, just, uh, I love artists that evolve, that mm-hmm. in one sense hold to what they have deeply brought and yet are willing uh, to move into levels of engagement. And Ed Sheeran, uh, just uh, in terms of the suffering of what his last year, lawsuit, yeah. wife, and whatever. Um, you know, I, I think in so many ways, uh, we, we are shaped by the sounds of, of people's lament, mm-hmm. uh, but also people's struggle to gain uh, the truth. So those just happen to be two people I was walking with today. Yeah, I love it. great. I love it. 
Linda, it's been great to meet you today. Dan and I have known each other at a distance for a few decades, but it's great to meet you. I, I feel like I got brought into Vanessa's inner circle today. Thank you, <laughs> Vanessa. You're so welcome. Do you feel like you understand me a little bit more? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I can see what I'm dealing with. <laughs> Linda and Dan, it has been such an honor and a joy and a distinct privilege to have you both here today. Thank you. Thank you for us as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Peace Talks, a production of the Center for Formation, Justice, and Peace. Our theme music is created and produced by Charlie Lowell. Each episode is produced and recorded on Cherokee, Shawnee, and Yuchi lands. For more information about Peace Talks or the Center, visit centerfjp.org or follow us on social media at centerfjp.org.